praise God that the words we sing about him are true and living and real. Let's turn to God's word now. Let's turn again to the first letter of Peter and the first chapter and the first nine verses, page 1219. And let's hear God's word as given through his servant Peter. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's verses 6 and 7 that I would like us to turn to this evening. And for emphasis, I'll read them again. We can never read God's word too carefully, too well, too closely. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what Peter has been doing in the first five verses, particularly verses three, four, and five, and we said this last Sunday evening, is he is showing us that our living hope Our real hope, our genuine hope, our eternal hope 
is all bolted on to one great unchangeable reality, which is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because Christ is risen, because he has risen in a body and has an existence that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. He can never be brought down from his position of being at the Father's right hand. He can never lose his eternal life. Because of all that, neither can his people. And because of all that, we have a sure, steadfast, and certain hope. And briefly this evening, my first point, which I want to cover fairly briefly, uh, which really is tagged onto that, is in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, where we see that the Christian believer rejoices now. There is present joy. There is joy now. And I don't want to spend long on this because I want maybe next Sunday evening to look at verse 8 and verse 9 and really focus on Christian joy. But I will just make this point. Today is a day of gospel rejoicing. Now is the day of salvation. There is a great appropriateness in saying good Christian men and women and boys and girls, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. Again, I will say it, rejoice. The Bible does not say there's no joy in this life. There's no happiness in this life. There's no rejoicing until we get to glory. Not at all. Today is a day of gospel tidings. William Tyndale, the great William Tyndale, the great translator of the English Bible in the 1520s. Well, he used, uh, he understood this Greek word, evangelion, gospel. And he says, it's a word that signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. That's what Tyndale says. Sing and dance and leap for joy. As when David had killed Goliath the giant. Came glad tidings to the Jews. That their fearful and cruel enemy was slain. And they delivered out of all danger. For gladness whereof they sung, danced and were joyful. So you can imagine. And we know from the first book of Samuel. That when David returned to all the people having slain Goliath the Philistine. The women folk of Israel were, were dancing and singing and playing their tambourines and singing praise to God and indeed praise to David. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. There was rejoicing. There was, if you like, a gospel joy at the time. Glad tidings had come that a great enemy had been slain. And what maybe we don't always get in our minds sufficiently is that a far greater enemy than Goliath has been dealt the death blow. Satan has been vanquished. Death has been conquered. Sin has been defeated. And we are those who hear those glad gospel tidings. Which is why Peter says in verse 6, In all that I have said, indeed he could be saying in Christ himself, you rejoice, you rejoice. And I want to come back to that theme of rejoicing 
as I say next Lord's Day evening. But the burden of verse 6 and the burden of verse 7 isn't really all about rejoicing, is it? Have you noticed that? Peter is a realist, and we all need to be realists. Peter knows that while the Christian life contains joy, it's not pure, unmixed, unmingled joy. There are trials that come to us. And no sooner has Peter begin to, begun to speak about joy than he mentions these trials. And straight away we understand the kind of patchwork character of the Christian life. It's not all joy. It's not all sorrow. It's not all trials. But it includes trials. And joy and sorrow in the Christian life will always be conjoined. So that as the Apostle Paul says in another place, we as Christians are sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. We are sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. So let's come to my second point, really the main point here in this text. The Christian passes through many grievous trials. A Christian believer will pass through many grievous trials. Now let's look at Peter's teaching here in verse 6, and I'm going to slightly change the order of the words he uses, but I want to put them in what I think is a logically and pastorally helpful order. There are four things about these trials that we should see. First of all, if you notice at the end of verse 6, it says, various trials. Various trials. What does the word various mean? Well, it means of all sorts, of all kinds, of many different types. We could put together in this congregation a kind of encyclopedia of different trials. How many different types of trials come to God's people? Well, we could list them and we would never stop listing them. There are so many of them, aren't there? There are some trials that come because we are persecuted as Christians, and maybe Peter has those particularly in mind. But there are other trials that come under the general heading of sufferings, difficulties, hardships, things that cause us pain. What are they? Well, we don't need to take long over them, but there are many, aren't there? Sickness both physical and mental. Bereavement. Loss. Disappointments. Failures in life. Persecutions. Poverty. Loneliness. The list goes on. And the Apostle Paul, who writes very freely from the heart about all this in Second Corinthians, gives a whole list of them in chapter 6. I'll just mention what he says there. These are his trials. This is a snapshot of Paul's trials. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. Had any of those recently? Sleepless nights, hunger, various trials, 
that come our way, don't they? And then another point that Paul makes here in verse, uh, Peter makes here in verse 6, going back a little bit. You have been grieved. We're actually kind of working backwards through verse 6. You have been grieved. Grieved. Trials are grievous. Or they wouldn't be trials. What do I mean by grievous? I mean that when trials come, we don't like them. We don't enjoy them. We want them to go away. We find them unpleasant. And maybe some of us are tempted to say, well, I'm not going to let this trial bother me. I'm going to be stoical about it. I'm going to grip my teeth and say, this will not hurt me. I'm not going to let this get to me. But that is to deny the reality of the fact that they are trials and they are meant to be grievous. And as we said this morning with, with Orpah and with Ruth and Naomi, when, when these ladies were about to part, they couldn't very well pretend that they, they were all completely happy about parting. It was grievous, it was painful. And they lifted up their voices and they wept and they wept loudly because this was a grievous trial to them. Their life had been very, very hard. And when we read the, the men of the Bible, we find the same thing, don't we? Does, does Job sit around in his ashes and in his misery saying, I'm all right, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me? He doesn't. Does David the psalmist say, uh, well, I know I'm suffering, but I can cope with it. I'm a strong man. I don't feel anything. I don't feel any pain or anything like that. He doesn't do that. Neither does the Apostle Paul. And neither even does the Lord Jesus Christ, does he? I find this increasingly uh, significant about the, the, the manhood of our Savior. That the perfect man as he was, he was able to say to his closest friends in Gethsemane, my soul is troubled and sorrowful to the point of death. Stay awake and watch with me. He says to his father, now is my soul troubled, John 12. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knew when he was undergoing a trial. Trials are grievous. And then, following on from that and going backwards again, notice how Peter says these two little words, they're even smaller in the Greek, if necessary. Now, we need to just think about that for a moment. If necessary, these trials come. They come only if they are necessary. And we are too inclined to think in a worldly way here and say, well, it's just, it's just rotten luck I've had, isn't it? Uh, to use Hamlet again from this morning, it's the, it's the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. They've been striking at us. I've had a raw deal. I've been dealt a bad hand. This is just a sad accident. Nothing makes sense. But uh, these have just hit me randomly. Well, I don't like this. But... What does the word of God say? If necessary. If necessary, who decides what's necessary? Our Heavenly Father does. If you're a Christian and you are being tried, 
and you have been tried for a long time, there's a reason for it. Your loving Heavenly Father considers this trial necessary for his own purposes for your life. But let's dig a little teeny bit deeper than that, shall we? And link what I've just said about the grievousness of these trials to the necessity of these trials. It's not simply that the trials are necessary. The actual painful experience of the trials, the grievousness of the trials, is also necessary. The trials come in order that we should feel the pain that they bring. Now this is a hard saying, isn't it? But this is a biblical fact. This text here is not meant for warriors of faith who are greatly afflicted but don't feel any sorrow or pain as they go through their trials. This text is meant for souls who taste the deepest distress. And our God says to us, yes, and the distress that you feel when these trials come is given necessarily. Spurgeon knew a great deal about trials. C.H. Spurgeon, grievous trials. Here's a snapshot of Spurgeon's own suffering and experiences, which I find extremely powerful and important to read. He says, I was lying on my couch this last week, and my spirits were sunk so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. But a very slight thing will move me to tears just now. Elsewhere Spurgeon writes about a time when a a pigeon flew into the window of his house and dropped lifeless on the floor outside his house. And Spurgeon burst into tears because he was in such a low state that anything like that just moved him so quickly. But a kind friend, he says, was telling me of some poor old soul living near who was suffering very great pain. Very great pain. And yet she was full of joy and rejoicing. I was so distressed by the hearing of that story and felt so ashamed of myself that I did not know what to do. Wondering why I should be in such a state as this, while this poor woman who had a terrible cancer and was in the most frightful agony, could nevertheless rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And in a moment, says Spurgeon, this text flashed on my mind with its real meaning. I am sure it is its real meaning. Read it over and over again, and you will see I am not wrong. And it's this text we have here. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It does not say, though now, for a season, you're suffering pain, though now, for a season, you are poor, but you are grieved. You are grieved. Your spirits are taken away from you. You are made to weep. You cannot bear your pain. You are brought to the very dust of the earth. And wish that you might die. Your faith itself seems as if it would fail you. 
That is the thing for which there is a need. That is what my text declares, says Spurgeon, that there is an absolute needs be that sometimes, this is, this is Spurgeon being breathtakingly honest, pastorally candid. Sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with a gallant and joyous heart. There is a need that sometimes his spirit should sink within him and that he should become even as a little child smitten beneath the hand of God. Now the point is this. I suppose at some time in our Christian life we've all seen the caricature of the happy Christian who is always saying, Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away and now I'm happy all the time. I'm H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I'm H-A-P-P-Y. You see these billboard pictures of the new Christian with his teeth and his glasses flashing in the light because everything's wonderful and there's a halo over his head and he's clothed in a sort of shining robe and you think, well, that's the Christian life as it's meant to be, isn't it? And it ought to be like that for me and why isn't it? Well, that's just not realistic, is it? And the point is, this is not just Spurgeon. This is not just Paul Hewlett. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the Holy Spirit saying, if necessary, you are grieved by trials. The grief is necessary. The pain is necessary. Hold on to that. There's one more thing, though, to see, isn't there? Verse 6, going back a little further. Though now for a little while, though now for a little while. Well, that sounds like mockery, doesn't it? Joni Erickson, thinking about her this this afternoon at lunchtime. 1967, 17-year-old, 18-year-old Joni Erickson dives into uh, a rocky pool and uh, thinks she's going to be able to swim her way out of it and crashes her head into the rocks, destroys and snaps her spinal cord and is paralyzed for the next 53 years as she is today. A little while, a little while, get real, as they used to say. How long is that? A little while. And again, let's be biblically honest. Did the men and women of the Bible say, oh, well, it's only a little while and I'm fine with it. You look in the Psalms, how often the psalmist says, or how often Jeremiah says, or how often Job says, something to the effects of, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? This is going on so long. When will the end come? There's no light, there's no let-up, there's no relief. It's trial after miserable trial. It's deepening trial and difficulty. That's our human perspective, isn't it? Oh, it's painful, it's grievous. These trials are so hard for us. But Peter says a little while. The Bible says a little while. There is a, there is a spiritual Holy Spirit, eternal perspective that God's people need to have. And it's the eternal perspective. And it's this. Yes, 
53 years or more is a little while when you place it against the measureless span of eternity that God's people are destined for in Christ. For I consider, says Paul, Romans 8, 18, that these present sufferings, and he knew all about them, are just not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. There's no comparison. It's like putting a millimeter alongside a million miles, he says. There's no comparison. It's like putting a feather alongside a great, a great ocean lining ship. There's no, there's no comparison in the size of them. These light or slight momentary afflictions, light, slight momentary afflictions, are working for us an eternal weight of glory. As we look to the things that are eternal and unseen, says Paul in 2 Corinthians four, seventeen and 18, for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal you know we sometimes look at God's people and we say how we, we sometimes have unworthy thoughts of God is, is God unfair is God unjust is God unkind here's Christian number one here's Christian A uh, look at him look at her lives to 95 100 years of age happy marriage happy family successful job Children following the Lord, excellent health, everything going well, well off, all looking rosy in that garden. Here's Christian B, the complete reverse, long-term ill health, misery, trouble at home, trouble in the family, trouble with work, trouble with finances, always doing their best but struggling and suffering all the way through. Why does God allow A and B to have such different experiences? Is God so unkind? Why? Why, why, why does a 17-year-old girl dash her head against a rock and become paralyzed for the rest of her life? It's not right, is it? God must be unfair. But you see, that's because we only ever then look at things from a human perspective and not from this divine and eternal perspective. If you are being tried, your trial is necessary. It's come from the hand of a wise God. And it's for a little while. I've taken far too long over that second point. I got carried away. Let's go to the final point briefly. These trials come with God's purpose. And that purpose is faith, which will bring God praise and glory. You see, in the same spirit of what I've just been saying just now, if we view our trials without the Bible in our hands and without the Spirit of God in our hearts and minds, what are we going to say about trials? We'll say, trials... Who needs them? Grief, sorrow to be avoided at all costs. Necessary? They're not necessary. They're unwelcome and unwanted and random and cruel. A little while? 
rubbish, mockery, how laughable and again how cruel that is. But remember, remember who you are if you're a child of God. How does Peter address Christians in this letter? You remember from verse 1, we did this two Sundays ago. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. Chosen. Loved. Favoured. But the reward and the ultimate joy and the glory and the inheritance lying ahead, yet to be enjoyed, yet to be taken possession of in full. And all our trials have to be seen in the light of that. Let me give four very brief reasons why we need grievous trials. Grievous trials make us more like Christ, our covenant head. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we think of that often in terms of our being made perfect as Christ is. But do you know what it says in Hebrews? That Christ was made perfect through suffering. And we have been called to union with Christ not only in his perfect holiness and the joy of that final day, but in the fellowship of his suffering. Union with Christ means likeness to Christ in the heights and in the depths. If you are going through a grievous trial, remember Gethsemane. Remember the Savior who plunged lower than you will ever plunge in sorrow and grief and pain and horror when he tasted death and the anticipation of being forsaken by his father. Grievous trials make you and me more like Jesus Christ, which is our goal and ambition, is it not? Grievous trials stop us from being proud they keep us away from any sense of being rather smug and at ease and arrogant in this world. They keep us from finding our first settled love and identity and purpose anywhere other than in the Lord himself. Grievous trials are God's bitter but healing medicine to prevent us from loving the world too much. And then thirdly, grievous trials, and this I think is important for all of us as a family of believers, grievous trials make believers more sensitive to the needs of others around them who pass through their own trials, maybe trials similar to our own. Maybe one day a trial hits you, some new health issue, some mental health issue, some new circumstance that you were just were not foreseeing. And you think, why, oh Lord? Why me? Why this? Why now? And for a while you think, I don't understand why this happens. It doesn't make sense to me. And then you, you discover that somebody else in the congregation has been through or is going through something very, very similar. 
and your fellowship with that brother or sister is greatly enriched as a result of the trial you're both passing through. And then fourthly, grievous trials are used by God to teach us lessons about him that we would never otherwise learn. You might say, isn't the word of God enough for us? Isn't scripture sufficient? Can't I be fully equipped for life and everything that I face just by knowing God's word better? Well, Martin Luther said this, Affliction is the best book in my library. And he's echoing there Psalm 119, verse 67, which we read at the beginning of the service. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. I'm a godlier soul, says the psalmist. I know the Lord better. By God's grace, I'm, I'm humbler. I'm less sure of myself, but I'm more sure of God. Because I've been afflicted. I don't go astray as I used to, and as I still would, because I've been afflicted in a certain way. Because I've been tried by a trial which has been grievous for me. The very word trial, what does it mean? It's something that tests us. And the picture that Peter uses in verse 7, of course, is that of a refiner's fire. I was never very good at anything crafty when I was at school. I wasn't a great woodwork or metalwork or technical drawing practitioner or anything like that. I did all sorts of things like needlecraft. I'm terrible at it. I, I didn't mind getting into the kitchen and cooking food. That was a different sort of thing entirely. I still quite like doing that. But when it came to the, uh, the workshop, the furnace, and the, uh, uh, the, the vice, and the plane, and the, uh, the lathe, and all these things, I wasn't very good. But I do remember we had to make these little copper trays with little brass feet on them. And they were little copper discs. We had to put them in this uh, furnace and have a kind of blowtorch, and we would fire this torch, this burning torch at these copper discs and we were told that it would, it would burn away all the dross and all the filth and all the muck and all the dirt and the copper that came out of the furnace would be purer than it was before and that's the picture we have here only it's not copper it's not copper not even silver in fact it's not even gold it's better than gold it's better than gold your faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, says the word of God, not only here but elsewhere, your faith in Jesus Christ is more precious than gold. And why does the Lord allow you to go through trials? So that everything about you and your character and your life as it is now that is dross, what does dross mean, the the filth, the impurities, the, the stuff you don't want there is to be burnt up, to be got rid of so that what comes out of the other end is something that shines and is pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and precious and strong. 
Because on that final day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, here I am, and all the children, Father, that you've given me, and look at them all. Look at what they were. Here's Matthew, the tax collector. Here's Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. You know what a swindler he was. You know what a cheat he was. Look at him now. Look at him now. He's been purified. Here's a woman caught in adultery. You know what she was up to? You know the kind of life she led? You know the kind of reputation she had? Deservedly so when she was living in the gutter? That's what she was. But look at her now. Here's a proud Pharisee called Saul of Tarsus who who wanted to destroy the church and hated Jesus Christ. And there was, he was outwardly righteous, but in his soul, in his heart, he was breathing out murder and threatenings against Christians. He was the proudest, most arrogant, blaspheming man on the face of the earth. Look at what he was. Look at him now. And no doubt Peter's thinking this himself. There I was on the night Jesus was was, was arrested and there I was boasting of my, uh, my courage and my strength and my bravery and my knowledge of how strong I would be to stand and say, I'm willing to go and die with you, Jesus. I'm up to it. I'm going to stand. I'll be the last man standing. The others will all run away and disown you, but I won't. And then, a few moments later, I just gave in to a servant girl three times and I fell and I wept. That's where I was. That's what I was like. But now through the furnace of affliction, through trials that have come to me, I've come through by God's purposes, a stronger Christian. And God wants you and me to be stronger Christians. Strong in ourselves? No. Strong because we reckon and recognize that all the strength and all the help and all the power and all the grace that we need comes from him. So, brothers and sisters, many of you are passing through grievous trials, and many of you will pass through grievous trials, or have passed through grievous trials. How do you view them? How do you respond to them? They are sent to you and to me by the God of our salvation whose loving design is to present us pure, that we should be exhibits on that eternal day of the precious, precious faith that God has given his people, tested, shown to be the genuine article, the real thing, so that God himself gets all the praise and all the glory. Let's pray together. Lord our God, do not leave us in our trials, but come among us, come alongside us, help us to remember what we have read tonight. May your word be precious to us. May we see also how much you love us, because Lord God, you deem it fit and right to send trials to us not because you hate us, not because you want to punish us, not because you want to uh, restrict us and, 
and somehow make us small and cramped, but rather because you want us to know how great and how good you are, how good your ways are, how great your salvation is. Lord, give this faith and strength to all your tried people, we pray. Make us all more like the Lord Jesus Christ through everything you purpose to bring into our lives. We pray for that perseverance. We pray, Lord, that you would keep from us a worldly spirit, a complaining spirit, that we would not fall when we are tried, but rather look to you and be strengthened by you. And all this we pray in the name of the one who himself was tried, was even crucified, in order that we might find in him all the salvation and love that we need. We ask in his name. Amen.